I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Hey. Hey, y'all. Hey. Uh, welcome back from our sort of week week break. Break for us, not for you, because you got yeah. like a special episode. Um, yeah, some feedback on Twitter. Really? Yeah, haven't you seen it? No. I forgot to tell you. Not appreciated. Oh, what did it say? Uh, they miss the bants. <laughs> That's the one and only time I will say bants. Well, who knew? We did have some feedback via email from Broderick, who has emailed mm. us before. Um, and he said that he liked hearing the East Yorkshire accent for most of the episode. It's North. <laughs> it's North Yorkshire, but yeah, it's it's a northeastern accent. Yeah. But I'm from North Yorkshire, not East Yorkshire. Uh East Yorkshire's not that bad. I have a lot of family live that way. <laughs> so well thank you. Um always uh a lot of love for my accent, so I'm quite happy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so hi, we're back. This is we're doing this this thing. Normal service has been resumed. Yes. Just, for now it's been a busy month yeah um so it's not getting any quieter no either. it's not um which you guys will all find out about next month yes because they're coming up to halloween yes halloween. yes yeah you know like on brooklyn 99 i mean on the party bus oh halloween. yeah You're just not appreciating it. You know, I like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but I don't like it as much as a lot of people do. So, like... I'm very upset. We did that Brooklyn Nine-Nine quiz once. I know! It was fun! I liked the and show. And we didn't come last. I think <laughs> that was the main thing. I've seen the show. I enjoy the show. I like the characters. I just don't remember much of it. Like, that's my problem with, like, comedies, I feel like, when I watch comedy shows that i just don't really retain a lot of the information and i'm not entirely sure why but see i i remember comedy because i remember one-liners yeah that's fair with the sort of dramas though that is where i forget which segues as nicely it does because today we're going to talk about the real life story that inspired one of the most famous cult tv shows of the 1990s uh, and even if you haven't seen it you've almost definitely heard of it and that is david lynch and mark frost's twin peaks so for those of you who haven't seen twin peaks or if you're like me and you know you've watched it <laughs> but you can't remember the plot like i know i have seen it yeah because i have a memory of sitting I'm watching it. It's just that memory does not extend to what the happened. The plot. Yeah, like, I, I, <laughs> I've seen, like, some of the first season. So if you're like me, or a normal person who just hasn't seen it, um, the show is set in the titular Twin Peaks, a fictional town in Washington State. The plot follows the investigation into the murder of homecoming queen Laura Palmer, who is discovered naked and wrapped in plastic on a riverbank just outside of town. A typed letter R is found underneath her fingernail, 
uh, which links her murder to another unsolved murder in the area of the previous year. A second girl, Renette Pulaski, is discovered in a fugue state. It turns out that Laura Palmer had been leading quite the double life. She was the homecoming queen, Dane the football captain, you know, typical all-American teenage girl. But she was also into drugs and doing sex work to support this drugs habit. The FBI is called in to help investigate. Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. That's a that's a fine bit of pie, piece of pie, or so, what's the? That's like all I can tell you about Twin Peaks. Kyle, <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin's character loves pie. Um, so that's a very basic rundown of the show's premise, and doesn't go into the whole horror supernatural genre bendingness of it all. Yeah, because it's like it's it's kind of cited as like a turning point in in TV. Oh yeah just incorporates so many different things yeah very mind-bending as well yeah it's real weird (laughs) yeah the show ran for two seasons from 1990 to 1991 spawned a feature film in 92 numerous books and a one season revival in 2017 but what is the real life story behind this acclaimed cult classic well you know we're glad you asked that uh because we're gonna we're gonna tell you so even though everyone associates Twin Peaks with David Lynch, which as well they should, uh, mm-hmm. it's actually a story from co-creator Mark Frost's childhood, which inspired the show. Frost was born in New York City, but had family who lived upstate. And when he visited his grandparents who lived near Albany, his grandmother would tell him the story of Hazel Drew, a young woman who had been found on the bank of a local river. The story became something of a ghost story in the area and a cautionary tale for local kids to stay out of the woods and away from the water or, you know, the ghost of Hazel Drew would come and get them. Did you have any stories like that growing up? I don't know because, like, I think I may have heard more stories like that if my parents had been from the same area. But because they were raised in California and I was raised on the East Coast, like, I think there was just kind of a disconnect. And I also didn't have a lot of, like, all my friends lived in different towns, so Mm. there wasn't ever the, like, local, like, boogeyman story that I got to hear. I always wanted to to hear about, like, the the boogeyman. There was a, there was a part of um, a public park just around the corner from my house growing up that was this supposedly the site of like a really bloody battle between um, some Native Americans and uh, English settlers. I mean, sounds about right. Which, like what part of Massachusetts wasn't basically. (laughs) Um, But like that was the kind of the only thing that i can really remember like oh king Philip's stockade and then i think there was a rumor that like some kids were murdered there in the 80s as well and it had you know it's like oh maybe it's like haunted or something but that's pretty much it what about you you guys um no which is weird because like you said like obviously you grew up on the east coast but your family are all from california like all my family's from where where I grew up and where I still live. Yeah. 
the house I live in is the house that my dad was born in and my aunt and uncle and my grandfather helped build it. So my family's been in this area for at least three generations. Yeah, there's no stories like that. So we have we have a very famous well in our village church, but that's the only story is like how this well came to be in uh, our village. Interesting. There's so the oldest house in the village, which is on the high street. The couple that bought it like thirty odd years ago, they eventually like restored it and did it up, and they found like priest holes and things like that, uh-huh. where like the pr- Catholic priests would be hidden. Uh, and we don't have a Catholic. We have two. Pr- uh, well, we have a a Protestant church and a Methodist chapel. In the village, we have no Catholic church. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, there's like an old priest hole and things like that in this house. And there's a lot of history, but I don't remember any like ghost stories. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's always more like his like history or like, you know, oh, this happened here, but it wasn't like so so beware, kids. Yeah. Which is possibly a generational thing as well. That's kind of what I was thinking too. Because like, uh, Mark Frost and David Lynch are in the s- late sixties, early seventies. They're like our parents' generation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when those kind of stories were told. But now I'm saying that I'm gonna have to ask my dad later. <laughs> I know. I feel like I need to like call my mom and see if she's got any mm. e- either ones that she heard when I was a kid or like ones that sh- she heard when she was a kid. Yeah, so so Hazel Drew kind of became this like cautionary boogeyman ghost tale kind of thing. Uh but she was a very real person and her murder in 1908 is still unsolved today. And you can see the influence that Hazel's life and death had on Twin Peaks and the character of Laura Palmer. So, let's go back to the late 19th century where it all began. Hazel Irene Drew was born on June 8th, 1888, to parents John and Julia Drew in Poston Kill, uh, near the cities of Troy and Albany in Rensselaer County, New York State. She had an elder brother, Joseph, and five younger siblings, Carrie, William, Emma, Emery, and Thomas. Although they're listed as known siblings. So there may be more. So there might be more. Uh, the Drews were an average working class family. And at the age of 14, Hazel left the family home to earn, she went to work in domestic service for an affluent family, starting as a servant, but eventually becoming governess. And she would continue to work in service until just days before her death. She was fair-haired and blue-eyed, described by all who knew her as a beautiful young woman with many admirers, much like Laura Palmer. Yeah. Uh, Hazel seemed to be living a very normal life. She had a respectable job. She attended church on Sundays. You know, top tier respectability back in the day, (laughs) church on Sundays. And had no known enemies. But also like Laura Palmer, there was a lot going on beneath the surface that most people had no idea about. So at the beginning of July 1908, uh... Then 20-year-old Hazel suddenly quit her job working for the mayor of Troy and his family. Now, we're not entirely sure what role she did for them, but 
um, we do know that she was working in domestic service in some capacity and apparently for the mayor's family. So governess, I mean, if she worked her way up to governess, she was probably working with his kids, right? Yeah. Uh, and nobody knows why she quit her job just out of the blue. She briefly returned to her parents' home, but she soon packed her bags and told her family that she was going to travel and visit some friends. However, uh, her exact movements remain unknown. Hazel was last seen on the evening of July 7th, walking along Taberton Road in an area called Sand Lake, not far from Troy. Uh, and she was seen by Frank Smith, a teenager who worked at a nearby farm, and Rudolph Gundrum, who is described as a charcoal peddler in his mid-30s. A charcoal peddler. I love I mean, it. What else would you be doing 100 years ago I, if you are in your mid-30s? Peddling charcoal. <laughs> Just, uh, it's great. Um, the area was reportedly known to be unsafe for women walking alone at night, but the men didn't stop to speak to Hazel or offer her, you know, a lift or like to walk her home or not so just left her. No no chival no chivalry. We're not none of that. Uh and this is the last known sighting of Hazel Drew. She never got to visit any of her friends. So never showed up. And uh, Hazel's body was found four days later, face down on the bank of Teal Pond. She had severe blunt force trauma to the back of her head. Sadly, Hazel's face was unrecognizable as she had been in the water for four days. So I think it was just her face was in the water. Yeah. Because every, every source says that her face is unrecognizable because she's been in the water, but she was on the bank. Yeah, it sounds pond. Yeah, so like, That's not tidal. It doesn't go up and it's down. It's a pond, yeah. <laughs> just like happened to unfortunately fall in such a way. Mm-hmm. She was eventually identified using dental records. Uh, she didn't drown, though. It was determined that there was no water in her lungs, and it was the skull-crushing blow to the back of the head that had killed her. Her death was determined to be murder, but she had no known enemies and was no obvious suspect to begin with. Sand Lake was a resort town, and around July 4th, the population always swelled with tourists, out-of-towners, as well as locals just enjoying the holiday. So there was no shortage of potential suspects, but none of them were obvious. But just like Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks, when investigators began to scratch beneath the surface, there was a lot more to Hazel Drew's life than met the eye. There always is. Ain't that just always the way? <laughs> uh, Hazel earned a wage of $3 per week at her job for the Maris family, which is equivalent to $90 today, which is not a lot of money. <laughs> um, but you have to remember that she wouldn't have had any rent, uh, utilities, or food payments taken out of that. So, like, pretty much her expenses were covered. If you've got, so $90, so if you've got, say, $360, at the end of the month, when all your bills are paid, that's not a bad life. Yeah. In this economy, in this bullshit, capitalistic hellscape we live in, <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah, like, if 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 everything else is taken care of and you just 
basically have like money for discretionary spending like to do what you want with then yeah what what more do you need right yeah um and she was only 22 so she's quite young yeah yeah so despite her modest income hazel was able to frequently travel around new york state and to boston and rhode island in first class which is interesting nice. Uh, and she also bought new and expensive clothes, which would seem to be far beyond her means. Uh, and Hazel's clothes were all tailored as well, which back in 1908 was generally a luxury reserve for the wealthy and far out of reach for someone who worked in domestic service. Friends would later say that they had no idea how she afforded the lifestyle that she lived and that she was just one of those people who could stretch money further than most. Or so they assumed, anyway. <laughs> um, but even with, like, super thrifty skimping skills, Hazel should not have been able to afford all these nice fancy clothes and first-class travel without a little financial help from somewhere. The immediate conclusion was that Hazel had a gentleman friend who wanted to spend money on her. But all of her friends said that Hazel had always insisted that she had no sweethearts, uh, no, you know, romantic relationships. However, <laughs> when police searched Hazel's belongings and along with her clothes, they found a number of letters seemingly from suitors or potential suitors of Hazel's. But there was a problem. None of these letters were actually signed by name. <laughs> Instead, they were all signed using initials. But one set of initials frequently came up, and that was C-E-S. When they asked around about who this man could be, all of Hazel's friends and family said they had no idea. Now, the letters and postcards signed C-E-S were all postmarked either from New York City or from Boston. And that was two places which Hazel had recently travelled. Uh, the day before she died, in fact, just hours before she was seen walking alone near Sand Lake, Hazel had been seen at the train station in Troy, which I think is called Union Station, by a few people, and she was in the company of a gentleman. Mm -hmm. None of the witnesses could identify this man, but many believe him to be the mysterious C.E.S. So, C.E.S. was obviously a suspect, because, you know, it's always the spouse. <laughs> it isn't, but you know. Uh, but nobody knew who he was, where he was from, or how to, how to find him. And in his absence, police found plenty of other suspects. <laughs> so, speaking of, remember young farmhand Frank Smith, who was the last person to see Hazel alive? Well, uh, he was rumored to also have been hopelessly in love with Hazel, although his feelings were completely unrequited and she had no interest in him at all. He was also seen as an easy target by police because he was, quote, dimwitted, according to truecrimeedition.com, uh, which gave them, you know, an easy solve. A young, quote unquote, simple man, madly in love with a woman who doesn't love him back, uh, who was also the last person to see her alive in an unsafe area. It's, you know, just your standard, easy, open and shut you know, easy win for the for the cops. I mean, when you say it all like that, 
There's plenty of cases actually fit. Oh, sure. That that situation. Maybe not this one. Yeah. Um, because Frank Smith was cleared after multiple people were able to provide him with an alibi for the night Hazel was murdered, uh, placing him nowhere near Sand Lake. As police began to look beyond the easy target, there were many potential suspects who came to light, according to a blog on Penn State's website, which is linked in the show notes, as always. Potential suspects included uh, a dentist who had proposed to Hazel, a train conductor with whom she may she might have been having a secret affair, and a local millionaire who was also rumored to be having an affair with Hazel. Sounds like a good portfolio to me. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that Sand Lake had been full of tourists at the time of her murder and was a popular place for hunters and fishermen. Uh, Hazel's murder had captured the nation's attention. And the ever-growing list of suspects just added to the fascination around this case. But perhaps the most interesting suspect was yet to come. At one point, police began to theorise that her own maternal uncle, William Taylor, may have been responsible for the murder. Although Sand Lake is close to Troy, where Hazel was living and working until just days before her death, and close to Post and Kill, uh, where her, fa- her parents lived, she didn't actually know anyone in Sand Lake, but her uncle lived just a mile away from Teal Pond, where her body was later found. He was also one of the people who helped uh, retrieve her body from the water. William's wife had recently died, and he was known to be depressed and, quote, melancholy after her death, which I think is his right. Yeah, that's, you know, you know that's fair enough. A common re- the common reaction. Yes, like a a, a a a thoroughly expected, you know, outcome of the death of a loved one. Yeah. So it was theorized that in his upset, upset, anger, and grief, he could have murdered his niece, which is a big leap in my opinion. But whatever. Yeah, like I mean, I think it would really depend on like their relationship. Yeah. Which, you know. But yeah. It seems like a weird thing to just be like, well, he was sad, so he's a murderer. But I couldn't find any more, like, context as to how they came to this decision. Yeah, yeah. So there might be more info out there, but... Or at one point there was. It's based on a lot of tittle-tattle by the sound of it. Yeah. Which we'll get to soon. (laughs) But it turned out there was more to this story than just a man driven to murder by grief. About six months before her murder in the winter of late 1907, early 1908, Hazel had spent over a month living at her uncle's farmhouse while she was struck down with a mysterious illness. Her brother and sister-in-law also resided at the farmhouse, and between them and William, they tended to her as she lay bedridden. Hazel kept in touch with her friends via letters, but nobody ever knew what mysterious disease she was suffering from, and no doctor was ever contacted to try and make a diagnosis. Uh, When they were later asked what had been wrong with Hazel, her family members all claimed that they didn't know and that they had just been doing their best to make her comfortable and help her regain her strength. Soon after the murder... Hazel's family closed ranks and refused to cooperate with the police. 
Her aunt was also rumored to have encouraged Hazel's friends to do the same. And some did, and some didn't. In the absence of any explanation as to why Hazel was ill over winter, people began to theorize that she was recovering from an abortion. Now, abortion at that time was illegal. Side note, Texas can go fuck itself. <sighs> I don't because have the wherewithal to to tackle that today beyond saying, like, let's stop trying to send the United States back to the Stone Age. I was like, I was writing that and I was like, I wrote abortion was illegal at the time. And I was like, well... Yeah. Here we are. Yeah. Or 113 years later. We're fucking back. Yeah. So, you know. And as we all know, when abortion is not legal or easily accessible, women are forced to seek out backstreet abortions, which are incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And locals began to theorize that Hazel's uncle had performed the abortion and that she had spent the time there recovering, which is why no doctor was ever asked to see her. And would explain why the family was so cagey about why she was there in the first place. So based on this theory that six months earlier Hazel had had an abortion, some locals began to theorise that Hazel was once again pregnant and was headed to her uncle's for another abortion, which is when Frank and Rudolph saw her walking down uh, Taberton Road on her own. Her family refuted this, of course, claiming that she didn't have an abortion in the winter and that she was simply going to the farm to say goodbye to her uncle before she set out on her travels. Yeah, which is also, like, potentially a perfectly reasonable explanation. It's also worth noting that, like we said before, there was an autopsy which found that there was no water in Hazel's lungs and that she didn't drown. So if she had been pregnant at the time of her death... That also probably would have been noted in the autopsy. Yeah, and given the national attention yeah. around this case, that would have been difficult to keep quiet as well. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, that's a story. So if mm. if the press was all over this and that kind of information didn't come out, then to me that says it didn't exist. Because you mm. know someone somewhere would talk. Yeah. So all of the suspects either couldn't be identified and found or were cleared after providing alibis, and Hazel's murder became a cold case as the nation's interests moved on to something new. After failing to find or identify a viable suspect, the police then ruled that Hazel's death was, in fact, an accident, and that there was no motive for murder. Are we just ignoring the the skull-crushing blunt force trauma? Yeah. She hit herself on the back of the head. And then fell face down into the Yeah, pond. with a, an imaginary murder weapon. And, yeah, just fell. Makes sense. It would be one thing if there was, like, evidence that she had, like, fallen down a river bank and hit her head on a rock and then yeah. you know happened to just fall face first into the water that's not what they made it sound like in the beginning no so, this is like trauma to the back of the head yeah from what i've read so yeah 
it just and she didn't drown so it's not like she banged her head was unconscious and fell face first into the river yeah she would have to like hit her head so hard in a she fall that like instantly. instantly yeah which seems unlikely mm. um but sure sure local local police that seems like a good idea um yeah, so the case became some, something of a local legend and part of the folklore of the local area and was told as a cautionary tale to make children behave. And pretty much nothing more was thought of Hazel Irene Drew for the next 80 years. Uh, that was, of course, until 1990 when a little show called Twin Peaks began broadcasting on ABC. Mark Frost and David Lynch came up with the idea of the girl next door lives a double life and ends in murder. And Frost began poking around the archives in Troy and Sand Lake for more information on the Hazel Drew story, which had been told to him so many times by his grandmother when he was a child. And in 2017, ahead of the Twin Peaks revival, uh, Mark Frost said, quote, uh, it was the notion of this girl's body being found on the edge of the water, the mystery remaining unsolved, the multiple suspects, and the, the kind of cross-cultural and different social classes of people she interactive, interacted with. It really struck my fancy. So he told that to the Washington Post, and that article is linked as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, totally get why that, where that story came from. Yeah. But there has been an unexpected side effect of Twin Peaks and of them revealing where the inspiration came from. Yeah. Um, so in the past 31 years since Twin Peaks began broadcasting, viewers and citizen sleuths have begun investigating Hazel Drew's death. Uh, but unfortunately, they have yet to solve the case. Uh, but at least they're working on it. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I It's super cool. I love that. And also, Twin Peaks is such a show that has some, like, very, very, very dedicated fans, I feel like. Mm. And yeah, that's cool that this is, like, one subset of that, potentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is the unsolved case of Hazel Drew and the inspiration behind Twin Peaks. I still don't get how... I'm just never going to come to terms with how it was suddenly an accident when they couldn't solve it. I know. Just, like... Just just kind of, like, walk away quietly at that point. Don't, like... Don't put a, like, neon arrow pointing to your incompetence. Yeah, that's the thing, like, let it become a cold case. Yeah. No, obviously, no detective wants their like high-profile cases to become a cold case. But but don't just say because like it's ah. not like there was this uncertainty at the beginning saying, "Well, this could have been an accident or it could have been murder." They ruled it a murder, like right yeah. out, out of the gate. So to then after like just not being able to figure it out, say. <laughs> it's fine it was an accident move along nothing to see here like yeah. that's just dumb um yeah yeah the <laughs> uh yeah so 
I have no idea what happened here. No, and I, yeah, I mean, like it could have been anyone, and because we don't know who all these letters came from, and we don't know what kind of relationship she had with the writers of all these letters either because she could travel first class she had tailored clothes which wasn't the norm for someone who worked in domestic service yeah you know she could afford to go on on all these trips and i wonder if they found any like more money among her belongings or if like any just like extra cash lying around I wonder because her so a suitcase had been stuck was being stored at the train station uh-huh. before she left. Uh-huh. So she'd been seen with a man at the train station and at one point she had her case and another point she didn't, but it was like being left like whatever their equivalent was of like luggage storage. Yeah, like left luggage. <laughs> yeah. Um before she went about the rest of her day. So there could have been more. There was, you know, Things could have been pilfered. Yeah. I mean, if you don't go back and pick your suitcase up on time, hey, and you don't claim it, yeah. it goes it goes off to be sold at auction. Fuck yeah! According to like reality TV shows, I mean, it, or you know, it goes to the there's a big warehouse in like Alabama or something that's literally just like unclaimed baggage. Yeah, so want to go there. <laughs> so. That does happen. Yeah. Uh, well, and also just like, I don't know. It's 1908. Nobody has TSA locks on their suitcases. or it, it, You know, half no. the time people are traveling with luggage that's literally like a box with like leather, yeah. like a leather belt holding it together. <laughs> yeah. So there could have been anything in that suitcase. So. It's just interesting because like. They seem to have made so much of the fact that, like, she was living beyond her means and she must have been getting money from somewhere. But then apparently there was no extra money. Like, so, yeah. and it could also have been that, like, someone was just buying these things for her. Someone was purchasing her travel mm-hmm. tickets and, like, getting them to her or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's interesting. I think that the abortion theory is interesting. It really does yeah. rest heavily on the idea that, like, she was having, like, romantic relationships or sexual relationships with these people in her letters. So it's one of those things. It's like, well. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Um,. And like we said, like, I think if she had been pregnant at the time of her death, that would have been revealed. Like, yeah, it would have come out somehow in some some way or form. Like, yeah, you would have heard about that. So that doesn't really make sense. I just don't know. But yeah, that's the thing. Like, that's the thing with this. There doesn't seem to be motive necessarily. Yeah. Or none that's like certainly like clearly evident to us now yeah but we we know from all these like older cases that we do record keeping was nobody's priority yeah well and especially if the police have decided it's an accident 
Maybe they yeah. just want to kind of sweep it all under the rug or into the f- fireplace, potentially. So, mm. <laughs> not surprised that there's a lot of information yeah. missing. So, yeah, we we have no idea. Yeah, but it's and, and we don't know who because we don't know who these letter writers were. I think that's the thing. Like, if they had at least found out like who some of these people were. That would be one thing if they tracked down the like CES or whatever, but there's just fuck all to go on. So, yeah, who knows? But letter writing also doesn't mean that she met up with any of them. Yeah. Okay, some of the letters were more intimate than others and suggested there had been meeting and there had been sex of some description. Yeah. Or some kind of like intimate physical contact. But they were like from all different people. You, loads of people write like pen pal letters and things like that. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean you've met up with these people. No. Same as like look at like online dating now. People are sexting all the time. Doesn't mean they've actually met up, especially in like a pandemic era. <laughs> yeah. And, and also like, I mean, it could kind of be a, you know, a, a, a tinder situation where like you start talking to six people but you only end up meeting up with two or three you know yeah. so like maybe these are just like potential romantic entanglements and not all of them came mm. to pass and or who knows or they were more into it than she was yeah. and the letters are all that happened because she was like nah, eh, never mind it. i don't like gregorio i'll move along why Gregorio? I don't know. That's Why the not? first name that came to mind? Yes, apparently. <laughs> I literally don't know why. <laughs> but I do think it's cool that it's it's the inspiration for Twin Peaks. And it there really do seem to be like a lot of parallels, which is neat. Yeah. I don't think it moves into the sci-fi fantasy genre bending realm. There's not like a isn't that thing in Twin Peaks like the red room and the weird and Bob. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think I don't think that part's true to life, but But I do find it interesting that it has sparked like a whole cold case investigation like amateur yeah. investigation into Hazel Drew's death. And we're seeing that more and more with podcasts and true oh, yeah. crime documentaries and just citizen sleuth in general. Yeah. Like um like Bear Brook, which we did on Patreon nearly a year ago. It's quite a long time yeah. now. Yeah. Um where like forensic genealogy uh helped partially solve a crime and then listen it was people listening to that podcast helped solve another part of it yeah and i just think that's really cool it is really cool and like i think i think the 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 coolest versions of that are these kinds of ones that like it's people spending their free time learning about a hundred year old cold case or trying to identify people who are found in the woods in the 1980s and like i think that part of citizen sleuth stuff is really cool obviously there are like a bunch of drawbacks as well and it's really 
dangerous potentially when it, it's like a new show comes out or a new po- podcast comes out and it's like, well, everyone who's listened to it or seen it is an expert on this murder case. Like Elisa Lam, I think Elisa is, Lam. is very sort of demonstrates the exact opposite and the yeah. dangers of it because that was fucking wild. Yeah, that, like, making a murderer, serial, like, all these sort of cases at the heart of some of these very popular, like, viral bits of entertainment. I think, like, everyone has an opinion. Mm. But yeah, I think that's really cool. It's, people are just like, what happened here? Yeah, And I think if if this is ever going to be solved, that's how it's going to be. Because someone is going to come across a random, like document yeah that, or a letter from a friend that got lost to time yeah and somewhere in deep in some archive somewhere that everyone's yeah, or in about. some relatives like hope chest and the, you know or something comes up t- to auction or like a piece of furniture like mm. i feel like that's how it always uh, you know actually gets solved as sad as it is, these these old, really old cold cases, they're not in anyone anyone in office now. It's not in their interest Mm-mm. to pursue them because the perpetrators will be dead as well. Yeah, unless there's some sort of like huge cultural significance. Like yeah. these things just don't get revisited. Yeah, you can't actually prove it. Like you can't get you can't get a confession, basically. No, and you can't you can't prosecute it. Yeah. So these old cases just aren't ever going to be investigated in the same way by law enforcement. But, you know, all these people, they deserve... They deserve to be at peace. No matter what yeah. you believe about the afterlife and all of that, they deserve to be able to rest in peace with someone having found out what happened to them. I think all of us deserve that ultimately. Uh, that's the thing. Like, I think that, like... Everyone deserves to have their story told. Yeah. By their family, by their friends, by by history, whatever it may be. Mm. And in situations like this, there's a huge chunk of her story missing. Yeah. And I think, like, it's really admirable that people want to try to fill in the details. And yeah. if they can do that, that's really great because it's like... It's a very, like, faith in humanity kind of thing for me, I think. Yeah, especially going back to, like, um, go back to the Bearbrook case. Yeah. The four people who were lost and forgotten for, I kind of remember how many years. Like, 30. Yeah, nearly, it was nearly 30 It was, like, 25 or 30 years. Before they got their, their names back. But mm-hmm. they will, like, nobody ever reported them missing. Yeah. So there was years before anyone even knew those bodies were there. And yeah, was public radio did the New, was New Hampshire Public Radio did the, yeah. the podcast, but it was just citizen sleuths who've pioneered an entirely new forensic technique. Yeah. Or forensic like forensic identification method. For nothing there's nothing in it for them. Yeah. And like you say, it's a proper like faith in humanity kind of thing. Yeah. 
It's like, that's really cool. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. And yeah, every everyone who has died, either nameless or they say with their stories just not being told. In especially cases like this where it's become so sensationalized. Yeah. Because yes, there are a lot of there are a lot of comparisons with Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. But Laura Palmer's story doesn't fill in the gaps in Hazel Drew's. Yeah. And it makes Hazel Drew's story a lot more sensationalized and a lot more salacious. Yes. And also like it kind of takes away from yeah. her story as well. Like, well, yes, you might know about this case because of its connection to this show. But, you know, Hazel Drew was there 100 years earlier, yeah. 90 years earlier, basically. Yeah. She deserves to have her story told separately. Yes. And I really hope that happens. Yeah. It's two sides to the coin that this case inspired Twin Peaks because it's brought attention to it, good and bad, potentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So if you're uh, so inclined to be a citizen sleuth, here's a good case to go go look at. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah. Very, very philosophical ending for us there. I know. It's what happens on a Saturday, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we don't normally record on a weekend. No. <laughs> oh god. You reach eighty-four episodes and then all All hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> all murders turn into accidents. <laughs> anyway. Uh so let us know what you guys think, as always. And if you like the show, be sure to rate in Review us on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And uh, we have merch if you want merch. And, um, you know, there are designs that are relevant to this here podcast. And uh, you can get that merch at squaremileofmurder.store or by following the link in our show notes or on our website if you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest invest in the future of the show you can join our patreon page tiers start at just one pound per month every patron gets regular episodes a day early a shout out on the show priority case requests and a lifetime merch discount and that's just for one pound a month. As tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive money camp by stationery. Check all that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. So uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye.